0: The president is using his office as a platform to contest the very nature of truth. If you're not scared, you should the be.
1: Millionaire makes us pay for his golf weekends, and I us to feed hungry
2: children have so they'll do better health, in school. I want or to feed hungry children exclusive. so they won't move.
0: Manafort had planned to benefit Putin. Government.
3: How's that Hashtag Trump
0: American still remains
3: strongly among Republicans? despite having charted record low approval rates, rates for the US President Donald Trump still remains the highest in the, the 2016 election
0: this confirmation is there is way by multiple the as on Facebook rolls work out work. new to combat, fake white, or the Trump era travel in the text class on this show. I can't say you're reading this.
2: I had a career And I know it when I see it.
0: Twitter's mind melts as FBI begins Seeking
1: recommendations for fighting or boxing classes. What are you feeling right now? If... You're feeling anxious or overwhelmed or shut down. You're definitely not alone. And since this new administration has taken over, unless you've been living under a rock, perhaps these feelings are coming up a lot. So we're dedicating this episode to sifting through some of what this political chaos and noise stirs in us and how we can deal without having to escape into the Alaskan wilderness. I am Lily Sloan.
2: And I'm Jessica Brown.
1: And this is A Therapist Walks Into a Bar.
2: A podcast that brings therapy to you. So it was a beautiful Sunday. Sunny, unexpectedly warm after unprecedented amounts of rain and cold in the Bay Area this winter. And with everything that's been going on in the current political climate, we weren't really expecting people to be so cheerful and hear so much laughter. People outside enjoying the warm weather and the weekend, drinking beers in tank tops and sunglasses, walking around the mission with their friends. but. Even with people feeling so good on this particular day, there has been a presence looming
0: since the election. Right.
1: So we decided to take this opportunity to ask people about the very thing they're probably trying not to think about right now.
0: Yeah, I'm going to escape reality, and that's what I do every weekend. I tune out to the news. I just don't want to see anything regarding Trump or every single awful thing that is happening. And come Monday, I'm like... Back to the trenches, I feel like I'm back at war.
2: Yeah, and I don't blame anyone for wanting to get out in the sun and have a drink and have some respite from the intensity of reality right now. I mean, it's been bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but with all these headlines coming in and disturbing us from left and right, and we can't escape them, it's like, how do we not shut down and check out completely? And how do we also stay engaged and abreast of things that are going on because it's so important to know but also take necessary breaks from it all
1: right yeah i mean i i think that's what so many of us are trying to figure out right now and we're all having varying degrees of success
3: yeah but for me personally i can't get too caught up in it you know like i want to um i want to support people doing the right thing and um however that comes about. But it's hard for me to, to, to read the headlines. You know, It's hard for me to, to digest that and, uh, and not be affected negatively by it. So again, I do exercise some willful ignorance with this administration, not because it doesn't disgust me and I don't want it to change and, and I find numerous problems with it, but because what I learned during the Bush administration of being too, getting too caught up in it.
1: When we start talking about managing these emotions, trying to react in productive ways and fight the good fight and and we're looking at ways this can be really difficult and how we can get hung up, especially when it feels like our sense of reality is breaking down. I remember waking up the day after elections and being so overwhelmingly depressed And I think the strongest reason was that I realized I live in such a bubble of my closest friends and like-minded people. And I felt very disconnected from at least
2: half of the population of this country. You know, this has caused us to really challenge ourselves to look more deeply within. Many of us have been completely sidelined and shaken.
4: Mm -hmm. I think it's a wake-up call that in some sense the things the 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 sense that things were better or that things were okay was always an illusion and based on one's situatedness in life and one's relative privilege or not we might more or less successfully buy into that illusion that things are okay we don't have to worry and trump's election is one of those moments where it ruptures that fantasy.
1: That's Kip Williams.
4: And I am a psychotherapist with a private practice here in San Francisco. And I work primarily with sexual minority men. I also have been uh, kind of involved as a community activist for uh, most of my adult life. Had an opportunity to co-direct the National Equality March on Washington back in 2009. We brought about 200,000 people to march on the nation's capital for full equality for LGBTQ folks, and all matters governed by law in all 50 states. And then I co-founded an organization after that called Get Equal. And uh, we were focused on coordinating civil disobedience and direct action that targeted Democratic elected officials who broke promises on gay and trans issues.
1: But I want to start with his personal story, because He says it was what really pulled him into activism. And I think this is true for many of us, like how our own personal traumas can incite us to take action.
4: I see Trump as a bully, and it's really hard to see a bully win. In the background of my feelings about this election are a lot of memories of being targeted and picked on and bullied You know, I I grew up gay in the rural South, and uh, back in 2005, my father died in jail because he was denied his court-ordered medications over a -a two-and-a-half-week period. That was a really traumatic experience for me and for my family. In my younger adulthood, I found that activism was a way that I could really channel in a constructive and a creative way all of the anger, the despair that I was feeling at the time. You can also look at activism from a sort of a perspective of experiential avoidance. Activism can also be a way of kind of looking outward and sort of reacting as a way of not having to kind of go inside for a lot of the maybe painful feelings that you're experiencing. You know, when I look back at those years, I think that the, the activism was both a really constructive way of channeling my pain and my rage that in some ways kind of saved my life. My attention and my energy could have gone toward a lot of self-destructive habits, so this was really healthy for me in a lot of ways, but it also served uh, as a way of never slowing down, never taking a look inside, and working with some of the vulnerable spots inside of me. And so I kind of hit a point after a few years where I kind of couldn't not pay attention to myself anymore and uh, started really burning out, losing the momentum, really severe panic attacks where I just needed to take a step back from the activism and turn my attention more inward and and toward my own well-being. feel now like I'm in a much different place than I was before and uh, I'm really interested now especially since Trump took office in okay so for me what is activism what is movement building gonna look like in this new era because I feel really compelled you know I feel very strongly about being involved and pushing back on Trump and on uh, on his agenda And I wanna do that in a way that doesn't put me back on the path to burnout that I experienced before.
1: This is the big question. How can we take care of ourselves and actively be engaged in fighting the injustices that are going on every day?
4: So for me personally, making sense out of this election has been letting myself get in touch with what that felt like for me as a child being picked on um, and paying attention, not again, not just to the activism and to the reacting or the responding to what's happening, but taking the time to be quiet and pay attention to what that feels like for me, to see this bully rise to power and to see, what was it, 60 million uh, of our neighbors vote for him. What's that like to see, you know, some 60 million Americans implicitly endorse blatant discrimination and self-centeredness? That's really painful. The anger and the righteous indignation make a lot of sense. But I think that if we're honest with ourselves, and we slow it down, there's something happening underneath that indignation and underneath that anger that's more vulnerable, that's more scared, that's more powerless, that hurts. And my experience is that when we don't take the time to pay attention to those processes and we instead just react, on the one hand, we can get a lot done, but there's a kind of a personal cost And I think we hear so many stories about activist burnout, because eventually we all find that we have to face that. We have to face our hurt. We have to face our powerlessness. We have to face our difficulties trusting other people, even the people that we're trying to work with.
1: I'm really grateful that we got to talk to Kip, because He's such a great role model for how to stay engaged and do all that deeper personal work. So let's keep digging into this.
2: It's helpful for each of us to really look at what gets in the way of showing up as we want to. We might want to take action, but we're so overwhelmed or we're scared or we're traumatized that we can kind of become frozen or paralyzed in that. Or we could be freaking out and trying to do way too much all at once and then burning out.
1: Yeah, our personal pain can be such a powerful, like, driving force for creating change in ourselves and in the world. But when we're caught in unconsciously reacting to this pain, we can skip over actually tending to it. And that lack of tending is what leads to burnout, our blind spots around our motivations can lead to interpersonal strife as we're desperate to solve the problems we feel so engaged with.
3: I mean, if, if all of the current administration, if they, were, if they spent a lot of time looking inward and facing their own demons, I don't think it would play out in the same way. I think that people who have unresolved conflict within tend to project that conflict outward and they create a lot of shit you know they create they create war essentially uh, is what it leads to
2: right so this this happens no matter what side of an issue you're on
4: we can't have healthy movements without people taking care of themselves you know, my experience organizing nationally around LGBTQ rights and the movement for gender and sexual diversity was that the interpersonal politics, the interpersonal relationships got to be really toxic. And one of the reasons that some of our organizations faltered and didn't become as effective and as powerful as they could have become was because the unhealthy relationships between people who were involved got in the way and kept the organization from being able to advance. So on the one hand, you know, I think that it's not really just about self-care and about our personal well-being. but It's kind of a matter of political strategy that we can't be effective and we can't really build movements that win when we're really caught up in reacting to these underlying traumas that we just haven't dealt with. So doing this personal work, doing this inner work is a political act of building healthy movements.
2: So this makes me wonder about the role of therapy.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, we're biased towards it because it's the work we've chosen and we believe it's transformative. And and we've seen that.
2: Right. But there's this idea out there that therapy is not necessary unless you're in crisis or severely mentally ill. And then if you aren't those things and you're in therapy, then it's just self-indulgent. And it's a place to go to be coddled, to be validated.
1: Yeah. And this work, I mean, it really is work for all parties involved, for the therapist, for the client. You know, it's, pretty misunderstood in pop culture, for sure. Like, within the umbrella of therapy, which could mean one-on-one individual therapy, or it could mean group therapy, or other kinds of personal growth work, I think there's two primary functions it serves. First, therapy can help you feel more safe and relaxed and cared for, and, you know, helping us accept ourselves as we are.
2: Yeah, I guess some people would think of that as the coddling part
1: totally yeah Um, but I think what we're finding is that hating on ourselves and using fear and shame to elicit change telling people to just get over it whatever it is just doesn't really produce good long-term results
2: when we can't care for and understand our feelings it's really really hard to show up for others and it's really hard to show up for what we care about actually in a productive way.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, that brings me to the second function of therapy to challenge you to step outside of your comfort zone and face some really painful and uncomfortable stuff that's been unconsciously shaping how you show up in the world and and maybe these revelations will inspire
2: you to make different choices safety and challenge you know these these two aspects are equally important and work in service of the other. With the support part, you know, I'm more able to face my human pain and flaws if I'm with another human that I feel safe with.
1: Right, sometimes we need therapy to feel a little more safe and sometimes we need to be really uncomfortable.
2: It seems like almost in anything in our lives that we want to change, there is this tension that exists. We have to determine where we need to build acceptance for something as it is like the things that we can't change, which there's plenty of. And then the other hand is where we need to take action and actually move towards transformation. And the real difficult thing is when stuff is coming our way, how do we stay regulated in our nervous system? Because when we're too reactive or too hungry to change we're too uncomfortable. We needed this to stop, to go away quickly. It can completely burn us out.
1: Yeah, my therapist is always trying to help me differentiate between reacting and responding.
2: Aha, uh-huh. interesting.
1: Yeah, at first I was like, come on with the semantics, lady, you know? But then I realized that you know, she was right. When I can slow down for a second and pay attention to what's happening inside of me, I can consciously decide how I want to respond. And reacting is less thought out. I feel like, you know, since the election, many of us have been in reactivity mode, which is really understandable.
2: Yeah, well, it's been scary. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I agree this slowing down allows us to respond and not react. Because reactivity wants us to accomplish the change right now, be instantly gratified, like, let's do this. Mm -hmm. We can feel that about our personal problems all the time. Oh, yeah. We can feel that about what's happening in this country, of course, too. But it takes so much to sit with the slow pace that change actually takes.
1: Therapy is an analogy to what's needed right now. This balance of challenging ourselves and taking care of ourselves. So even if you don't go to therapy to work on these issues that are coming up, here are a few things you might want to keep in mind.
2: First, we can reframe our times of inaction as actually self-care, which is something we consciously choose to build in.
1: Yeah, or it's time when we're doing something else that that's good for our
0: souls. What I do on weekends, it actually recharges me. Uh, by Friday, I am so depleted mentally and spiritually. I recharge on the weekend. Be part of like being here at this pub, going to the park, going. I love to dance. Anything that just to like to enjoy the moment. Yeah,
2: and also the focusing on your own values, like what really matters to you, and nurturing those things in your life as well as relationships.
1: I just want to spend more time with friends. Spend more time out there in the nature. That's weird that that's coming as a reaction in addition to, I also want to do something and I want to action on things.
2: Yeah, and figuring out how to navigate all the stuff that this administration is stirring up, whether these are feelings we can fuel into organizing and taking action, or it's something to process and feel instead. And finding support, talking all this stuff out with other people is really critical. A big piece is not being alone.
1: I think so much stuff boils down to that, that we we need to not be alone. We need each other.
3: Um, I feel better talking about it because honestly, uh, I don't really talk about this stuff much anymore. Uh, and that's and, that, and that's that's difficult to not express your thoughts and feelings, you know, just to hold them inside and stuff. Um, Does it surprise
1: you that it actually felt better to talk about it
3: No, I usually feel better after I talk about things. (laughs) I'm sure most of your clients do too.
1: (laughs) And, you know, the other piece that I think is really important and that, that Kip spoke to really well is, for those of us that are white and cisgendered or straight, have some other kind of privilege. We're becoming more aware of the inequities. We're waking up a bit more to what has actually always been going on. There are some important pieces that both will challenge us and be important for our self-care in that as well.
4: Part of the context in which we are trying to resist or to build a movement happens within the racial history of this country. And I notice a lot of white folks coming to the table politicized through this experience who want to do something and a lot of hurt and anger from people of color asking, where have you been? And what I want to say to white folks who are getting involved, who are getting engaged, is to slow down your defensiveness and don't get too caught up in proving that you're a different kind of white person and to focus instead on humility and on listening. But I think that we As white people in this country have a special responsibility to take a step back, to not try to run things or impose our agenda about how we think things ought to go, to not prove how different and how good we are. And that the work of racial reconciliation is fundamental to building a movement that won't be divided and conquered. And that that's going to require of us white folks a lot of humility and a lot of listening and a lot of being willing to follow right now instead of trying to lead.
2: Yeah. And if this topic around privilege and oppression is something kind of newer for you that you want to read up on more, we do have resources on our website. Totally. So what now, though? You know, we have a lot of long term work to do as a society
0: Well, this is like investing. There is long and short term. We can't just hope for long term and ignore the short term. Necessity of some things that need to be stopped and changed now.
1: All of that intense emotion that drove thousands of protesters around the country to show up at the airports, for instance, that wasn't wrong. We need
2: that. Absolutely. We need people to sacrifice, to march in the rain, to scream and yell. These are powerful demonstrations of opposition. You know, it's been painful. It will be painful at times. And we will feel burnt out at times. Like, we just have to be realistic about that.
1: Right. And we need the people who see the big picture and can work calmly and strategically. You know, the ultra-marathoners.
3: Like, to affect change in a, in a significant way is, is not going to happen overnight. I think a lot of people have been very active so far in, in these last few weeks. I think a lot of those people are going to burn out real quick, you know, which is fine. I think there will be a whole nother, a new wave. And as long as those waves keep happening, um, you know, maybe we can take shifts as far as being active, you know. You know, we, we can all divide into groups and we could potentially be in there for for eight eight years. I mean, that's, I mean, think about that.
2: <laughs> it kind of reminds me of, you know, therapy. It takes a lot of different turns. Sometimes it's crisis intervention, but then when things kind of smooth out, can go deeper and do more of the long-term healing. When people's, you know, basic needs are met, there's something that's available to settle and to do some deeper healing work. We're often balancing these because staying in crisis mode, you know, isn't very effective for long-term change.
1: Yeah, and hopefully by attending to ourselves through therapy, through time away in nature or connecting with people we love, we'll be able to build our tolerance for sitting with the discomfort long enough to choose how to respond without clinging to our desperation to fix everything this very minute.
2: Yeah, because that's just too fucking exhausting. And
4: one thing that has helped me to cope with that anxiety and to get my feet on solid ground is the idea that this particular moment isn't all that unique. And we're not here to push back on a particular agenda, win a certain campaign, and then be done. That this call to action is more about a way of life and a way of seeing the world. And When I think about it from a broader perspective, that what I'm doing, what I'm working on in this particular moment, whether we're successful, whether we're defeated, is part of a much bigger struggle, an ongoing struggle for social and economic justice, for progressive values. On the one hand, it's a little overwhelming because we will never win. We were never meant to win in any final sense anyway, that the whole point is about being engaged in the struggle, that this is about what do our lives stand for? What do we believe in? How do we show up and contribute to that in the world? So if on the one hand, that's a little overwhelming, that we'll never really be done. On the other hand, I experience it as a kind of a relief. That, oh, it's not so much about being caught up and what I do or what I don't do in this moment, whether we're successful or whether we fail in this moment, but it's more about living into this in the long haul. And I have found that really helpful for calming down my own anxiety and the, the, the urgency of it. We will never be done.
1: This episode was written and produced by me, Lily Sloan, with Jessica Brown. Quick announcement. I cannot even begin to express how excited I am that Jessica is not just a guest co-producer. She has joined my team of one, and now we're a team of two. Jessica's contribution is helping and will continue to help strengthen the show's content and take on some of the hard work that goes into creating each episode.
2: Yeah, and I'm so excited to be a part of this. On with the credits, we'd like to really thank Kip Williams for this very powerful interview. All the strangers at the bars we spoke with, and our friends who contributed their voices for the Facebook feed readings at the beginning, Sarah Henley, Jesse Rhodes Abby Volk and Eric Welch
1: and as always the theme song is provided by Topher M. Lewis
2: and all of their music and sound design is by Lily
1: and by the way we had two microphones this time and I just want to thank Stacy McGirl for sharing her twin microphone with me thanks Stacy. check out A Therapist Walks Into a for more information about guests and resources to support you during this crazy time
2: yeah and sign up for our newsletter too and subscribe
1: in iTunes follow on SoundCloud, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Leave us a review. Yes! (laughs) If you have been listening to
1: the show and you like the show, we want other people to know about it. If you're concerned about coming up with something to say, you could say something really simple,
2: like... This show is as good or better than a piece of chocolate cake.
1: Or... Lily and Jessica are the Neil deGrasse Tysons of Therapy.
2: <laughs> okay, okay, alright. I think that's going a little far. Alright, fine. A woman can dream. <laughs> for those of you who made it this far, thanks for listening. And now
1: Jesse Rhodes tries to say gorsitches.
0: <laughs> White gorsitches take two. White gorsitches that is fucking hard to say. White Gorsuches says. White Gorsuch that, um, why Gorsuchus's. Fuck me. Why Gorsuchus's heading into Neil Gorsuchus's here. <laughs> let me do that again. Heading into Neil Gorsuchus's here. Fuck. <laughs> he fuck?